They were high school sweethearts that got married and had two kids. It's the Brunettes. From a new location, they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunettes. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunettes. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig. This is my husband, Matt. Hello, everyone. Hope you're having a good spring so far. Happy May Day. It is the first day of May. This is an international day of uh, celebration of labor, workers' rights. I do not respect this day. I only respect Labor Day. Okay. Well, uh, you know, so uh, to all those who are celebrating, uh, happy May Day with, with total respect to those who are uh, or not. Uh, I should put in a word here for our affiliate publication, Jacobin Magazine. Uh, friend of the cast, as a, as a corporate entity, they are having a May Day sale. Uh, if you want to subscribe to Jacobin, there are a lot of good reasons. For one, Mr. Matt Brunig publishes there occasionally. They have some great spreads, beautiful artwork, and are leading the left uh, in intellectual development and discourse. So, Consider signing up, subscribing for Jacobin Magazine. It's their May Day sale. Promo code the Brunigs. There is actually no promo code. Promo but code the Brunigs. I don't know. It would. I don't know. Of no any. space. All one word. The Brunigs. Okay. Well. Uh, 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 at any rate. Uh, so there have been some political developments this week, namely uh, the American Families Plan, which is a lesser version. Of the family fun pack. Uh, well, I guess you could view it that clap, way. Clap, 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 clap. You could view it that way, I suppose. Uh, so, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about the American Families Plan introduced by President Joseph Robinette Biden? Uh, yeah, so... I'm um, going to start talking like a newscaster. That's good. I think that'll we keep were, people engaged. We were watching the news the other day, and I hadn't realized in a long time uh, how freakishly these people speak on broadcast news. Yeah, yeah. They we were, were talking about a death. Yeah. And they were like... Local news is is really <laughs> and that delivery man was pulled dead from the rubble. Like, <laughs> they, dude, yeah, take it easy. Remember, and then they had an interview with the restaurateur in yeah. front of uh, the the where the guy died in front of, and yeah. he was like, "Today was a bad day." Yeah, he's like, uh, <laughs> "That's it. That what was can his I comment. say? It was a bad day." What was this comment on a truck slamming in and destroying <laughs> one of those temporary structures they put in the streets to yes. facilitate outside dining, and in the yes. process, wrapping a delivery man on a moped around a tree and killing him? And the restaurateur is like, "It was a bad day." It was a bad day. <laughs> you have some good days. You have some bad days. This is how it goes sometimes with life. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you know, you got to respect it. Uh, it do be like that sometimes on this bitch of an earth. But, you know, this is a very strange thing. Anyway, American Families Plan. Take it away. Yeah. So <clears throat> the actual content of the plan is just all over the place. There's yep. discussions about unemployment benefits. There's discussion about the Obamacare exchanges. There's discussion about, I mean, anything and everything you could imagine. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to focus on the specific family benefits stuff. And there are, you know, three components of that, three main components of that. You've mm -hmm. got the child allowance, you've got paid leave, and you've got child care. Now, I've already talked about the child allowance a hundred times on this podcast, so I, I'm not going to bother people with that again. I will only emphasize uh, just to kind of inoculate people against the almost universally incorrect media coverage of this, that we have not yet extended the child tax benefits completely to the poorest people. We have extended the child tax credit to the poorest people by getting rid of the phase-in. Mm -hmm. But the earned income tax credit, which is, for all intents and purposes, an identical kind of tax benefit for children, they did not extend that one to the poorest. That one is still phased in. So really only about half of our child benefits are now available to the poorest. Now that's better than zero. Yep. That's better than zero, but maybe let's go 100%. 
maybe make 100% of the, of the child really? benefits available yeah, to but poor there, there's, people. There's some level of child poverty, which is good. It's very, very right? perplexing <laughs> to me. Um, and, and even more perplexing is the degree to which I just cannot get traction for this claim. Yeah. And it's not like anyone says, Matt, you're wrong. You've misunderstood. It's just like no one gives a fuck. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I don't get it. Because if you believe, this is what frustrated me so much. I know I said I wasn't going to spend, I'm not going to spend much time on the de- technicals of it. But the reason you get rid of that child tax credit phase in is because you think it's bad. You think it's evil and wrong to exclude the poorest kids from the benefits. That's the reason you do it. Right? Right. What that same thing applies to the earned income tax credit. It's the same program. So why, Mm -hmm. how can you, you know what I mean? How can you sit in this dissonance of being like, this is extremely evil and bad and um, it's a world historical great change that we've solved it. And you're like, well, here's this one too. And you're like, Mm -hmm. nah, that one's good. Keep that one phasing in. But it is what it is. I'm going to start pushing that. Uh, I don't know. We'll see what yeah. happens on that front. Um, they are creating a cliff. I guess that's the, aside from just my usual objections to the way that they've done this. Right. The thing that people are going to be bringing up about uh, this child uh, tax credit stuff is that they have basically said, hey, in 2026, we're going to set it up in this bill so that it expires. Mm-hmm. And so it'll go down from a benefit of 3600 per kid or 3000 per kid, depending on the age of the child, down to 1000 Mm-hmm. So they're set. They're scheduling two thousand dollar cuts to the program in twenty twenty six, and the reason they're doing this is because the way that the uh, CBO scoring window works is however much spending you set up in the next ten years, that's sort of like the number. So when people are like, "It's yep. a two trillion dollar bill or one point eight trillion dollar bill or whatever," it, they're talking about that ten year window, and so. If you make it to where programs like expire halfway through, even though that's not what you intend to do, then you can say the bill doesn't cost as much Mm -hmm. as it costs. And I've never really understood this dynamic because you have to ask yourself, Mm -hmm. which is the member of Congress that is asking for this? Yeah. Because I can imagine a member of Congress that says, look, I don't want a bill that's too costly. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're spending too much. Okay. You know, maybe they're wrong, but that's a thing people believe. And so you go to them and you go, okay, well, I got a way to cut the spending. We're just going to uh, annihilate this benefit in the middle of the 10-year window. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you go to them and you're like, are you okay with that? Yeah. Because you ask them, you're like, do you actually intend to cut this benefit then? They're like, oh, no, no, no. Ah. What, so then you know you're, you're going to still spend. Like yeah. the savings are illusory. Right. But that's what you were worried about. Like if you were really worried about spending... Why would a gimmick that doesn't actually reduce the spending, if it works out the way you want it to work out, why would that satisfy you? It shouldn't. And if so, what does that mean? If you don't care about the spending, then why put it in at all? This is like—is this like a function of the fact that this is all done by committee, right? Like that, you know, you're satisfying different people and covering different bases, well, so you who, wind up with a very strange. Who product. is the individual who is satisfied by? The bill costs less because we do a fake sunset in the middle of it that we're not actually going to follow through with. Because yeah. if that person really cares about spending, they're not satisfied by that solution. Yeah. I don't, and I'm if they don't care Joe about Manchin. spending, then they wouldn't care. But what is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. What is he worried about? Yeah. Because you could set the spending at whatever you want. It's not like there's an actual bucket that you have to hit. You set the number. Yeah. So you could set the number high enough so that you don't have to phase it out or, I mean, sunset it. Uh, but that's where we are. Now, that's going to create a very bizarre arrangement because of course 2026 you don't know what the government's going to look like then so yeah. uh they're just playing chicken they're playing games with this yeah. um and saying hey we're going to force a confrontation in 2026 about this um and who knows who might be the uh, president or who who will hold power in congress at that time mm-hmm. um but yeah that's where we are on that paid leave i'm gonna leave that aside for now there's only uh, actually two sentences three sentences in this paid leave (laughs) proposal um not really much in the way of details so i'll just skip over that they're going to fill that out at some point i'll talk about it then Mm -hmm. child care is the interesting one because that's where that's where all the heat's going to be that's where everyone's talking and the democrats have uh, continued this really strange position they have on child care 
where, you know, we have right now, we have K through 12 school. That's like the norm across the whole country. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you go, there's a district that'll give you free K through 12. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, okay, well, K starts at, y- at age five. So what about ages one, two, three, and four? Mm-hmm. What do we do there? Mm-hmm. And the democratic position is ages three and four, well, we'll just, just do like K through 12, mm-hmm. free pre-K. Like, okay, that's a, that makes sense. We have free K through 12. We have these four ages we also need to hit. So just extend it to them, right? Mm-hmm. But then they go, but not for ages one and two. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I'm going to exclude babies on this one. It's important that it be free for ages three and four, but not for ages one and two. There we need very complicated schemes to make this kind of thing run. And you, I've asked a thousand people, what the fuck is going on? Because even if you had to choose, even if you're like, look, we've only got enough money to cover two, two ages. <laughs> yeah. You would choose one and two, not three and four, because... Yeah, they're not pulling their weight. One and, two, one and two is more expensive, and the parents are slightly younger, and so their incomes are going to be slightly lower. And, you know, I mean... I want to thin the herd. You got to leave them on their own for one and two, and then the strong ones make it to three and four, and then I'll cover them. Yeah, that, that's what Ryan Grimm said when I was on yeah. his podcast. He was saying, look, it's important for the first couple of years to let them know, yeah. like, th- it's, you know, there is no free lunch. Like, later on, you can give them sort of the free lunch, but it's important at, in those that's sort of formative moments. Yeah, to hit them up front with, look, nobody's going to give you anything <laughs> in life, my bitch. And then, like, actually, yeah, no, people are going to give you a lot of shit in life. But, so like, that, but, you know, be on notice. So that's the position we're in. Free, free pre-K, but not free child care. Mm-hmm. Once, once you hit three, it's a magical moment yeah. where... Pre-K, but no, all, no daycare. All the reasons why you should uh, apparently uh, create kind of a complicated sliding scale subsidy scheme instead of make it free, all those disappear yeah. on your third birthday when you blow out those candles. Um, yeah. Okay, whatever. I mean, I guess, hey, free pre-K is good, so I'm not going to quibble with that. So then we just go to child care, ages one and two. Yeah. And... You just get this sort of clusterfuck of proposals. Mm-hmm. There really are basically three programs that will exist post this plan if it passes. The one is a sliding scale subsidy for childcare mm-hmm. services purchases, sort of like Obamacare. So they'll they'll look at your household income and they'll say, at your income, you only need to pay 3% of your income towards childcare and the state will kick in the rest. Now, of course, there's a question of what, how is the state kicking in the rest? Is it going to be through an advanced tax credit? Will they have to repay it if they misreported their income? There are a lot of kind of implementation questions here because Obamacare works that way and they use an advanced mm-hmm. premium tax credit if you get a plan on the exchanges to make sure you only pay, you know, whatever it is, 7%, 8% of your income towards your healthcare premiums. But a lot of people end up owing and having to pay some of that premium tax credit back because their income changed and whatever. Mm-hmm. So that could be a mess, but whatever, that's sort of, you know, step 1 mm-hmm. is you report your income, you go use your child care service, and we make it sure you only pay whatever, some percentage based on your income, 5%, 6%, 7%, whatever. The yeah. number that they're going for is they're saying if you have one and a half times your state median income, you'll have to pay 7%. Okay. That, that's the only like fixed percentage they tell us. They don't tell us, well, what if I make less or what if I make more? Where's the thresholds? They'll have to fill that in. But that's kind of the setup. Okay. Uh, now, of course, you ask yourself immediately, like we just said, why not just 0% for everyone as you are doing for free pre-K? <laughs> Clearly you have conceived of this as a possibility and not just as a possibility in K through 12, but even as a possibility in the form as we're extending this. Um, but whatever. Okay. So we got the sliding scale. Now you think, okay, well that's just how they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. No sliding scale for pre-K. It's going to be free and K through 12 already, but we're going to have a sliding scale fee for ages one and two. Mm-hmm. Done. Okay. Whatever. There are some countries that do that. Mm-hmm. But no, there's more. Ah. Then there's the child independent care tax credit. And the way this works is they will, at the end of the year, you will report how much money you spent on child care and they will refund 50% of it to you in the form of a tax credit up to a $4,000 credit if you have one child or an $8,000 credit if you have more than one child. Um, now, of course... This becomes a sort of a confusing idea. If I'm getting the sliding scale subsidy up front, then what are my costs 
Do I report those costs when I'm claiming my child and dependent care tax credit? Mm-hmm. Do I only report the the part that I pay? So like if I'm paying 7% of my income towards the child care because I'm getting subsidized, is that 7% of income, whatever that dollar amount is, I then report that to the child and dependent for the child and dependent care tax credit and then mm-hmm. get 50% of that back? Mm-hmm. Is that how it works? I mean, that's how it seems like it works. But if that's the case, why are you setting the sliding scale subsidy at 7%? Why don't you set it at 3.5% and just get rid of this child and dependent care tax credit thing? Like, why Why would I, why would you say, yep, <laughs> like, like, if you put it together, your intention is to make it to where I only pay 3.5% of my income. Right. But instead, you're charging me 7% up front and then making me get the 3.5 points back at mm-hmm. the end of the year through a tax credit why why would you do that Mm -hmm. and then the last crazy thing is the dependent care flexible savings account which is like this thing you can get through your employer where you can put now as much as ten thousand dollars ten thousand pre-tax dollars in it and then use that to pay for child care so there your benefit is that it's pre-tax so you save what depending on what your marginal income tax rate is that's sort of the percentage you save Mm mm-hmm so how does this, so this, so I get the sliding scale subsidy up front, then I take money from my dependent care flexible savings account, I pay that towards the fee that I'm actually charged, and then and I get a tax benefit equal to my marginal tax rate. And then if there's anything left, I pay that in like my own cash, and then I can claim that own cash towards the child and dependent care tax credit and get fifty percent of that back. Mm-hmm. But also if my marginal tax rate is below fifty percent, it makes more sense to actually put the money to actually pay the money just with my own cash and then try to claim the CDCTC instead of use my dependent care flexible savings account, mm-hmm. which means that we need to go out to people and say, hey, if you have a low marginal tax rate, do not use your employer's dependent care flexible savings account. Mm-hmm. You're better off just spending it and then getting it refunded at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. At least if you can manage that as like a cash flow matter, because if you get it refunded at the end of the year, you get 50% back. Right. If your marginal rate's less than 50%, using the DCFSA is worth less than that. And it's just, aside from why don't you just make it free, yeah. if you're not going to make it free, make it make sense, make it simple, make it easy. Why does they just extend every little fucking hobby horse that someone has and with no one sitting back there and being like, how does this whole thing work? Does it make sense? What are we trying to accomplish? How much do we think someone who has this level of income should pay towards childcare? How much? Is it 7% or is it 3.5% or is it even less than 3.5% if they also use a dependent care flexible savings account, which depends on whether they have a job. It's just, you know, it just reminds me always of this, you know, of this <laughs> Alex Jones drop. I, and, and I think about this all the time mm-hmm. whenever I read democratic policy yeah. proposals. Even if you're like, oh, that's great. They're doing something. You're just like, Why? This is Why the, this? this is the inner monologue that runs in Matt's head every time. No one has the instinct or the will to execute anything real. They only execute failure. That's <laughs> true. I mean, that's just right. No one has the instinct or the will <laughs> to execute anything real. They only execute failure. That's all they can do. Right. It's all failure right. for some reason. They don't have the instinct or the will. That's what it is. It's yeah. like there are got to be people smart enough to like run this out. I'm not the only person in the country and they just, they don't have the instinct or the will to do it. Just failure. Just failure. Just like just throw shit at the wall. And just think about a normal person trying to navigate something like this. I'm thinking. Just, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, We'll see how it goes. I'm sure it'll just be the usual clusterfuck. Hey, you got this, and there's also the child tax credit. Oh, there's also the earned income tax credit. There's a DCFSA. There's a child independent care tax credit. There's a sliding scale subsidy. Figure out what you want to do and do it. Don't just keep proliferating programs that don't interact in a clear, meaningful way. Nobody's got the instinct or the will. Now, the other thing with the child care stuff, and this is where the objections are coming in, is that it doesn't extend if you like to do parent care. A lot of people, uh, slightly less than half, maybe more than half, depending on how you count it, Mm -hmm. say for kids who are age one and two, 
especially. Usually by three, like the vast majority of people seem to have a preference for pre-K at this mm-hmm. point. Um, but for ages one and two, you have a very large minority, if not a slight majority, who say, I think it's important for young kids to be cared for by their parent. And I would want to care for them myself. Which would mean just staying home with a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Like paid leave, but right. for longer. <laughs> I mean, it's funny that this is framed at times as uh, reactionary because you look at, for instance, the Nordic countries, and this roughly matches the, the leave that people in civilized countries receive. Finland and Norway have, well, they, they all have paid leave programs, which are about a year mm-hmm. um, or more. But like 52 weeks, like total parental leave pot, that's like a pretty much a minimum. And then it can go a little bit longer. But And then there's a question, okay, after 52 weeks, what do you do? Yeah. Um, so for years one and two, mm-hmm. what do you do? And Finland and Norway give you the option of, of saying, you can either put your kid in, in child care mm-hmm. and we will take care of that for you. Um, or if you want to do home child care, we will pay you for that. Which sort of makes sense. If you're not using the child care, then the state saves money because <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have to provide you that service. And so it can give you that money back or even s- slightly less than that money back, which means the state actually saves money. And so um, that is not, that was a, may I, I think it was briefly available in Sweden, um, is not available in Denmark or Sweden currently. Mm-hmm. And there is a bit of a hot button uh thing people push sometimes there uh where they you know it kind of has a weird valence where people don't know is this reactionary is this good bad we've talked about this before um Mm -hmm. but uh, that's absent and i mean that's just been absent from the discourse generally i'm the only person i feel like who has ever put forward a proposal in the u.s in the think tank world that says hey free child care if you don't want to do that because you're into parent care or in some cases, it's just not practical to use child care if you live in a really remote area. Mm-hmm. Then we'll pay for that. You, you're the child care. Here. You, you know, here's your child care money. You're, I'm paying you to do child care. So great, instead of paying someone else. I think I'm the only one who's really put that out there. So I mean, I never would have expected it to be in this proposal. Yeah. Um, but this t- instead, what happens is this tension arises mm in the discourse right. where especially social conservatives who are real into like, I'm all about stay at home mom and stay at home parent. And that's actually an important thing to do. They, every time there's a childcare proposal, mm-hmm. they just go at it yeah, and say, this is war on stay at home parents. Oh, this of course. Is- they, and it's such a duplicitous thing because if there is, if there are, you know, for instance, a, a child allowance that doesn't have a phase in, they'll say, actually, we want moms to go to work, yes. et cetera. Uh, this, this is nudging women out of the workforce. We can't reward non-work. But then as soon as there's a proposal that would allow people to stay home uh, or, or would allow people to put their kids in care, uh, excuse me, uh, this is a war on stay-at-home moms. Yeah, the, I mean, it's completely duplicitous. The official like American compass position, if you put it all together, is that a a non-phased-in child tax credit, like the one that they passed, where even the poorest get the cash, mm-hmm. that is unacceptable. If you're not working market labor and getting enough money from that market labor to get over a certain threshold, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If your kid... Fuck them. <laughs> like, fuck those kids. <laughs> like, that's the official position. And then you turn around and you're like, okay, uh, free daycare then. I mean, fuck. Like, if you don't want to give them cash, then give them free daycare so they can then go and work, I guess. And they're like, nope, don't want that either. They need to stay at home and watch their kids because that's right. important for, you know, bonding and, and the family and all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, it's. It, something's got to give here (laughs) either you want them working or you don't and if you're not going to give them money to watch their kids and you're not going to give them daycare to go work then what the fuck do you want them to do yeah um and of course the answer is we don't want to spend any money the answer is that they want to use this they want to use both of those 
situations right. to drive a cultural war wedge to create some kind of cultural hysteria. In right. the case of the non-phased-in child tax credit, they want you to think about the laziest, moochiest right. uh, moms who are on drugs and not working. And they or want whatever. you to think about black people. Yeah, and right. so As they want usual in anti-welfare. That's part of it for sure. Yeah, and. That so they want to, you know, just drill that up to try to yeah, gen try up to opposition, gen up. Yeah. and then when it comes to the daycare stuff, it's like let's just go the other way. And we know there's a large contingent of people who love to fight the mommy wars about whether you know it's important right. for uh, moms to you know stay at home or not, right? Uh, or you know put them in childcare, whether that's some kind of neglect of motherly duties or whatever. Like that's a big thing on among certain. They're just right. I mean, so, so let's just gin up that shit. Ultimately, the real politics here is the material politics, and that is protecting the interests of capital. Uh, yeah, they don't want the welfare state because fundamentally, that's gonna you know to pay for the welfare state, that's gonna drain the incomes of high earners, like at least to some degree. Right, and also the welfare state uh, it loosens the bonds of capital over workers. That's true as well. Right. And so, uh, you know, I recently wrote a column about uh, capital versus government and this kind of clash of the titans thing. And so much of the culture wars is just uh, people either operating on behalf of a capital or the state trying to win over the populace. Mm-hmm. Right. But ultimately, it's a it's a fucking ruse. They don't give a shit. They obviously. don't care. Um, and so, and so, this is a case where the right wing has resulted has resorted to trying to uh, gin up opposition to these family benefits using culture war, right? Because that worked for Trump. It's worked for them for a long time. Yeah. Well, and they're caught flat-footed as yeah, well yeah. because it's like their no, whole thing no. is, "Hey, I'm a Republican who's not like a just complete sadist." Right. Uh, and then. But okay, well, well, that's just a Democrat, <laughs> right? They're <laughs> like, so, like the Democrats come out and they're like, well, we got to find some way to get to the right of this. But it's like yeah. the right of this is just sadism. Like it, you know, it's not like it's hard to get to the, the right most of Dems. Yeah. maximalist left wing policy, yeah. right? It's a you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's a Anglo liberal welfare state that they keep developing out. They don't ever flip into no. Not Nordic even close. Style benefits Not even close. Or anything. Right, and so like you, uh, you can tell that it's still sort of signature Anglo-liberal welfare policy because it's all fucked up. Yeah, 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 no, that's that's the best sign. <laughs> like, if the, you look at it, and you're like, this, this looks like a dumbass made this. Ah, the Brits. Some fu- somewhere in the fucking genealogy, the Brits are behind this. When you when you see something that just absolutely doesn't make sense and is designed in the worst possible way, you're like, ah, oh, yes, this uh, this is English to me. <laughs> the Anglo's are involved here. Um, and the funny thing is that the current uh, right-wing dispensation, sort of in the wake of Trump, who was an absolute genius at ginning up culture war shit, uh, the, this current stock of dude who's trying to fill in that right populist position sucks. Dumb. Just dumb shit. I mean, J.D. Vance, because J.D. Vance is now running for Senate, right? Yeah. Or he's now, whatever, yeah. announced it, I guess. Yeah. I think. Hillbilly candidacy. Yeah, okay. So he uh you know, he tweets universal daycare is class war against normal people. Yeah. It's like, what? Are you (laughs) 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 class war against normal people? That class we all know and love. It's like of the normals. What are you doing, dude? And then uh that was just a bizarre ass. Well, that's like that's an effort to be like uh, because there was some poll. It's not like a free, like when I think normal people, I guess, not to interrupt. It's like the distinction that, like usually when the conservatives are doing that, the foil is some kind of like uh, blue haired, crazy, yeah. screaming. Like that's the shit they like to do, mm-hmm. right? It's to be like, look at those fucking freaks. Campus activists. It's like, th- that's the person who's, that's, that's the, you know, <laughs> that's the universal daycare person. Right. And I so know. like they, they are so pressed that their effort to gen up popular resistance against these daycare benefits is to try to frame the people who would benefit from kids being able to go to daycare as campus activists. And there is just nothing fucking further from the truth. Those people don't have kids. Yeah. One. Well, I mean, I ultimately he's trying to root it in something, but he, he can't even articulate it. Right. Like what they want to say is, as is true, that preferences for child care over parent care 
are yeah. related to income and education. Yeah. So higher income people and higher educated people have a higher preference for childcare for their kids, which makes sense and for a number of reasons, one of which is that their labor market alternatives are good yeah. or at least on average better, right? If you have a degree and you're like, oh, I could get a good job. Yeah, I'd like to have my kid in childcare. If you don't, you're like, mm, I don't know, this kind of seems better to me than working the fucking checkout right. counter. Um, so, you know, there's a point there. There's a kernel there, but they can't even articulate it. They articulate it like aliens. Who yeah. Just have no way of like just expressing a very simple concept because they are so detached from it. And then, like we said already, they don't have solutions. Right. No. Like no. I've got a solution, which is, okay, free child care if you want it check if you don't all right that's the most obvious solution and they're no no No, no, (laughs) that that also is is bernie bro to Um, me so like it it reminds me of it actually uh, i haven't thought about this in years but it touched this weird repressed memory there was some shitty movie that you uh chose one evening uh where a girl to be more specific i know yeah and that's a big big range a girl was being bullied in high school and someone wrote on her locker slut things Yes, yes, I remember this. And uh, I don't remember what it was called. Theoretically, they're trying to say the the stuff, the contents of this locker belong to a slut, but mm-hmm. it could also be read as like, you know, various slut insults. I you, legit scanned it that way. Yeah, I know you did. I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, this is like a placeholder. Like Post-ironic. Like, yeah, <laughs> like actually a really good, like in an otherwise shitty movie, I was like, this is actually pretty <laughs> funny like because genius. they were just like, uh, you know, just fill it in, like do like a slut taunt here. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's so good. That's you know, a good just bit. various, various slut things, and so like that's kind of what they're doing with culture war. They're like, you know, uh, lib stuff, normals, and uh, uh, daycare, and uh, you know, just fill it in, fill well, it in. And to use the uh, the analogy to high school, of course, we get Orrin Cass, who said something even crazier. No, this guy's that- a goat. <laughs> He's the best. And you know, people from the podcast will know. I had a debate with him. You can. It's on our feed somewhere. Um, People, please, please stop replying. Orin ass. That's immature. He tweeted angsty teens. Well, I I guess I should take a step back. Rob Rousseau Mm -hmm. tweeted uh, in response to Orin Cass's organization, American Compass, putting out that poll in which basically the uh, the poll was really bizarre. But like the basic upshot of it that they're trying to get across is that hey, lower class people have a higher preference for parent care. Still, a large percentage of them prefer child care, but like a larger percentage of them prefer parent care than upper class people do. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. That's a fine enough point. Um, and Rob, Rob's uh, interpretation of it is, free daycare is bad and no one wants it or likes it, according to this study from the Exxon Citibank Small Institute, Small Business Institute of Personal Freedom. <laughs> and, you know, this is an attack on that. And Oren reads it correctly as an attack on on their little survey and quote tweets it with, Angsty teens who think they're sticking it to the man by wearing Abercrombie grow up to be lefties who think free daycare sticks it to the suits. It's just really puzzling. It's just, it's a mystery. I mean, it, it, it did jam the discourse in that it's it's inscrutable. You can't screw that. Yeah, what? The Abercrombie guys? <laughs> That's the leftists? <laughs> those, are, those are his... If you read it literally, I don't. Maybe he's doing something really high level here. But I if love it. I, if it's not super high level, it suggests that he thinks that mm-hmm. the sort of edgy crew mm-hmm. in high school wear Abercrombie. That that's yeah. that's the nature of that brand. Yeah, and that that just is not the case. I I mean the the Abercrombie people to. Uh, in case you missed this somehow, or you're older or younger than our general cohort. Uh, we're talking about like all American washboard abs, Letterman jackets. Uh, yes. Not, uh, I mean, there's it a, is a, it is a preppy brand, yeah. I guess you would say. Yeah. Big time um, jock brand. And, um, and I uh, was wondering, I kind of think like, I would like to get a, a hierarchy of brands in his mind or not a hierarchy, yeah. but like one of those, um, memes with like the, uh, <laughs> the, the cafeteria tables. Yes, and like, yeah, yeah. I want to see him put the brands together. Like where does he put, you know, I don't know, Hollister or American Eagle, American Hot <laughs> Topic, uh, Hot Topic related things. Like, yo, homie, where are the Tim Burton, Inuyasha people go? Novelty t-shirts. <laughs> um, 
petite people who wear just like athletic shit all the time. Uh, parachute pants and uh, wallet chains. What do you do with that? <laughs> the big giant jinkos. <laughs> <laughs> like where, what are the jinkos in uh, his mind? Jorts and a fubu uh, shirt. <laughs> the fubu. <laughs> it's fubu a, and rock aware. It's just um, very, it's very, very puzzling. <laughs> and uh, and of course the you know the jokesters on Twitter had a field day with it. Uh, there were some good responses down thread. Yeah, there were a lot. There were a, a lot. lot. Uh, um, Abercrombie, anything there? <laughs> good question. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, it did. You did send me this clip of a yeah, song, which is, I do remember yeah. now. Oh, and I, God. I guess does actually perhaps prove. Yeah. Prove that this was uh, that you know. I guess it, it gives you a good idea of where Abercrombie <laughs> is culturally yeah. situated. This is 2005, so this would have been when he was in high school. So it's uh, you know it's it's good contemporary evidence. It's like uh, you know the people who you read their books and they're always talking about. If you read this novel from 1883, it tells you that the society at the time. Yeah. And uh, I'll just play, uh, mm. I guess, the uh, yeah. chorus of this um, song, which I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with. Chinese food makes me sick. And I Chinese food. They're on some kind of pier. Yeah, so these are guys who have like uh, uh, frosted tips. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, maybe might wear... They're muscly. Yeah, they're like doing the kind of tight t-shirt muscle guy thing. I mean, you're not dealing with hardcore edgy people it's funny that like if these were the edgiest and most angsty people in in the cast orbit in high school i i i can't imagine where he was situated I, it, yeah. that, that probably <laughs> tells you what he need to know that he you know he probably went to one of these sort of like elite private schools and that yeah. was like if you weren't just wearing a suit to class every day you were kind of kind of out there even yeah. if it was just uh you the know edgiest, Abercrombie. yeah the edgiest people in high school were the ones who were having sex and stuff and like that's true that's true too that could be it is is like oh those people were uh they were promiscuous they were wow. i mean yeah and then and it's funny that in the context of our uh not to reminisce too much but our our gigantic four thousand person north texas public school which pulled people from every imaginable walk of life like there were like genuine crimes happening at school. Oh, for sure. Not infrequently. So yeah, like yeah. The, the edgiest people in our <laughs> in our immediate orbit were like going to prison. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I remember it, when yeah. I was uh when I would get in trouble and I would have to be in the pr vice principal's office and her policy was to not punish me. Oh, she was cool. She which I thought was very wise. Instead, every time I got sent to her office, she would make me spend the rest of the period running passes mm -hmm. to bring real criminals to the office. Yes. She's like, "Matt, you you need to go fetch the actual criminals yeah. um, and bring them to my office. Yeah. You know, not forcibly, but go send the pass to them." No, <laughs> she had the right attitude toward you, which is like, "Well, private joker." <laughs> and then she just made you go get people. Um, now but, there, there is. Yeah. I actually want to play one clip oh on this song. Oh God, it's the worst song. Because I listened to the whole thing. Because listen to me. I'm not going to play the whole thing. No, but I, uh, I wanted to. Uh, there was one uh, little bit that stood out and really shocked me. Okay. Um, thinking about the nature of the song. Um, hit so hit here us. We go. And it's re it's relevant in some ways, I guess, to the I family guess, stuff. I suppose. Okay. Here we go. Slow. You love hip hop and rock and roll. Dad took off when you were four years old. Whoa. There was a good man named Paul Revere. Okay. Much better, baby, when you're near. Yeah. So we go from uh, Dad took off when you were four years old to then the very next line. There was a good man named Paul Revere. Uh, it, it, the, the whole thing is like. I, I'm just gonna say, like, ambiently offensive. Like, I don't. <laughs> oh, it's extremely offensive, extremely confusing. It's just like, very the, the nature very bad. of the rhymes. Not even the rhyme, but like, it appears that he's going places to find rhymes. Yes, but absolutely. Like, they just there's no effort to make sense of it. He's like, well, I want to say because the next line is, I feel much better, baby, when you're near. And he's like, okay, I got a rhyme. Near. It's like um, a it's a song that would be like oh. conjured up to make a joke about how white people can't rap. <laughs> Is this meant to be a rap song? I I believe that they they do talk about hip hop 
in the course of the song, and I believe they've oh, they, and rock and roll, and but they understand themselves to be. Yeah, I let's believe, see what uh, Wikipedia calls in, them engaging in the hip hop tradition in this particular uh, song. Pop, R and B, pop, rap, no hip hop no, and sir. dance. No. So that's true. They're in. They're no. definitely. I would just put them in the genre of sucks, better, forgotten, light, funky ones. It's very rare that there's a song where I would just turn off the fucking radio, and this is one. I'm not going to listen. There's there's like a there's a like a tick in in music like this where it's like a white guy going oh, and like like very deliberately saying u h to oh. like space a beat, yeah. And it's just very deliberate, and it's like there was a good man named Paul Revere, oh, and then they'll pick <laughs> up the next beat, and it's just fucking unbearable. I just can't handle it. The, uh, yeah, I feel like they need to put a little bit more craft into this. You know, you can't just just stick weird shit in there just yeah. to, to kind of, you know, get get the pad the song out like it, it's a fucking high school paper. It, or it something. is. It is defiantly shitty. That's true. It's Maybe self that's what they're aware, going for. and it's like mocking you with how shitty it is. <laughs> you listen to this, don't you, you little right. piggy? Look, this is my job. I get to make money doing this, and it just sucks. It just outright fucking sucks. There was a good man named Paul Revere. What? Was he good? Like, I don't know. He was a, you know, yeah, he was a know. man of his time. I like, guess. you know what? Like, was he woke? I, I just, what the <laughs> fuck does this even... Was her dad Paul Revere? Yeah, I mean, that's is this why he an, left. Another side of him? I mean, it, <laughs> it's just this was fucking... It's infuriating. He left to fight the Redcoats. I'm just angry that I had to deal with it at all. <laughs> well, um, it's like an upbeat song, and then he's like, you remember when your dad left you... Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I thought we were just going to be talking about summer girls and having fun. You know, white right. boy summer. Uh, you know. That's not the kind of white boys we're talking about, dog. Okay. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> so enough of that. Uh, wanted to give you a brief parenting interlude. You mm. are always uh, mm. wondering about what's going on in the Brunig household. Um, and the answer is that in a sort of uncomfortable turn of events, I guess Jane is now really into skin color. Yes, Jane has developed an interest in skin color. And uh, I, I don't know if you can say race, because race implies some kind of that, uh, yeah. ideology layered on top of it, which she definitely does not have. Um, no, she's you trying tell. to understand how how it is that people look different in a pattern. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, it seems to have developed initially from... Uh, the child care or pre-k i guess yeah. she's in pre-k four and you know Any kids from all backgrounds she's yeah this is you know I, and <laughs> she's like noticing not only that the kids look different but that they look like their parents right so they come and pick them up she's noticed that when a black child's parents come they are also black and that when an asian child's parents come they're also asian and she's yeah. like that's interesting so there's a pattern here they always look like their parents and so that's interesting so she has this anxiety about what it would be like if she did not look like us yeah she's like look everyone is paired and looks like their parents and like it would really bother me if I didn't look like my parents because then I would stand out and it would be it would be strange. Right. Uh, I that's, you know, that's like her view at the moment. Wouldn't um, feel as connected to you. And, you know, that's not how she expresses it. But that seems to be the basic anxiety. Yes. Um, and I do think it's also interesting um, the, uh, <laughs> the degree to which she, uh, the, her taxonomies of people, which I don't know that she's like developed them like, in an explicit way no. but she definitely will you know when she's looking at people or or whatever like like if you ask her about someone and um she she might tell you oh I, this person is this color yeah. you know <laughs> like that's a description you might make of someone i guess like you might talk about their eyes their clothing yeah. their why not also their color um and she has a fairly wide range yeah, like so. The one that stood out to me that I thought was really uh, interesting was uh, she canceled. What's that? This is when she got canceled. Oh, she got yeah. Well, she's canceled. The uh, you know she she has uh, two two coaches um, yeah. uh, for soccer that uh, you know they just it's like soccer practice. They kick the ball around. She has fun times, uh, not like competitive or games or anything, but you know a good recreational activity. And they have these two. I think they're high school girls that teach them and it's really sweet yeah. and at one point i i don't know any of their names 
and the chain didn't either because I don't know, they didn't introduce themselves or whatever. Um, they just started doing it. And I asked Jane who her favorite coach was. Um, and she said that she liked uh, the white one. And <sighs> right. Well, but, it, but then it got weirder because they're both white. Like, and any normal scan taxonomy. Right. One of them is a is a dark haired Italian. Yes, girl. I eventually was able to deduce. Oh, you know, it's this one you're talking about. Yeah. And then you look at, well, wait, the other one is white, but yeah, she's somewhat darker complected, and she has an Italian she, surname. She's like an olive skinned. And so yeah. for Jane is like that person doesn't is not white. Yeah, Jane independently deduced Italians aren't white. This is due to I I have to presume extended exposure to Matt who also holds this opinion, <laughs> which is unacceptable. Uh But it, it it does show the sort of arbitrariness of it, right? <laughs> yes. Because like you, you she's you know, it's only through ideology that you would go, oh, those two people belong in the same racial group. Yes, She's exactly. Like, By color, no. One's this color and one's that color. Right. Um, I mean, she has zeroed in on the fact that you and I are different colors. Yes. Right. So and you, her and, and Claire also. I think you are also on the verge of being declared not white because Claire and I are super fair. Well, that is the funny thing because yeah. Jane is, is kind of tan and sort of naturally as I am a little bit tan naturally I mean, just like a deeper skin um, tone and yeah. uh but she did she regards herself as white she now she's not as dark as the the italian coach but yeah. uh you know um it is it's interesting to watch them develop that in a world where they have no reference at all right right because we i haven't talked to her about anything like this so it's just like she's sitting there looking at the world and figuring out these kinds of taxonomies and you know well and she talked to my friend sarah so uh, there was a period where Jane was very concerned about earthquakes. Mm -hmm. Remember, she was especially worried that there was a volcano under our house. Yeah. Um, well, she saw um, a movie. She saw something on Netflix or something. I watched it with her. And there was a Mexican town where yeah. a volcano literally, I don't know if it was a town or some village or, you know, but there were people around it and a volcano just popped out of the earth and like, like a fucking month or something yeah. like that. It was, it was crazy. And so she, she was really concerned that there's maybe a volcano under our house and she was similarly concerned about earthquakes. And I was like, um, look, man, the good news is you really don't have to be as worried about volcanoes and shit as you think. Um, and, uh, I, I, I have a friend, my good childhood friend is Sarah. She's Japanese American. Um, and she's in California. And so I, I FaceTime Sarah with Jane to talk about earthquakes because Sarah, of course, has been through plenty of earthquakes living in California. And um, Jane noticed that Sarah is, in her words, golden. Okay. Which I thought was a very sweet rendering. Yeah. And like, it's true, right? She has like a, a lovely kind of golden skin tone. She gets a lot of sun and she's Japanese. So... It's beautiful, and Jane has no sense yet, and it's really kind of lovely and innocent that, that there's anything pejorative about that. No, no, no. Right, there's nothing. nothing pejorative, and I wish I could, like, seal that in amber. And you, you feel bad because, like, eventually all this shit is going to pour in from yeah, the world, yeah. and she's going to come to think or at least have knowledge of the, yes. the idea that there's a hierarchy here. Yeah. And She'll know that these differences have attached social meanings baggage, that, yeah. you know, are not real, but, you know, she'll, she'll have to contend with that. Whereas now she's just like a lovely uh, panoply of humanity. Right. People come in you a know? lot of different colors, uh, shapes, and sizes. That's cool. And it is. And it's, it's hard to even think about how to handle that. I mean, the... You know, we've been living through some major justice movements, Me Too and the, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, think about these things as they're happening and how to communicate them to a kid. And I think with Jane, the thing I've come to is uh, it's helpful to concretize and not, not really try to go into abstractions so much. Just be like, yeah, there are a lot of different people. Sarah is Japanese. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way she looks and that's her background. And, you know, grounded in specific people she knows as opposed to letting her get carried away um, with with these phantoms, mm -hmm. right? I mean, she 
you know, one of the people she was closest to was her, her nanny who was black. We were in Washington, D.C., who she's still very, very fond of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think trying to, I don't know, explain these differences through people who are familiar and whose lives she's been a part of is better than trying to go into it with, you know, well, there are, you know, people have arbitrarily broken the world up into these categories and... Yeah, well, as with most know. things in parenting, there is a time and place. The yeah. Brain, the brain's got to get to a certain level yeah. before certain things can be understood, so... You can you only just, teach somebody what they're ready to learn, but it, it I hope, you know, I want to... I wish I could preserve the, her innocence <laughs> in this respect. At any rate, anyways, for the of last people who have lost their fucking innocence completely, ten uh, minutes. Yeah, meet the new hero of the Brunigs podcast, Todd Spodek. <laughs> That's what you picked the name out. I actually didn't catch the name. Um, yeah. I've been watching Generation Hus Generation Hustler. I think mm. that's what it's called. Maybe it's Generation Hustle. Generation Hustler, I think, on HBO Max. And it's a fun show. It's like any other uh, like white collar true crime shows like American Greed or whatever, mm-hmm. where it's just every episode is some kind of scammer. Um, and I guess they kind of tried to make it like skew young. And that's like Generation Hustler because most of them are like, you know, millennial hustlers who did it when they were in their 20s or something. Yeah. Um, I think that was the basic idea. But... Uh, but as part of that, they had an episode on Anna Delvey, who was, uh, you know, hit the news a couple of years ago as a fake German heiress who was running Manhattan, uh, running around Manhattan at least, living in hotels, living it up, and became a kind of uh, brief, I don't know, sort of socialite and yeah. climber in those circles um, until it all came crashing down. Because, in fact, she had no money and she was basically using check kiting and wire fraud, uh, like literal wire fraud, like Mm -hmm. bank wires to pay for all the shit that she was doing, um, including living in hotels and all the rest of it. And that is what it is. And it was an interesting story. And she looks crazy when you see her in court, at least. Um, And she was kind of living it up on Instagram as well. Like everyone, there was actually a handful of people in this series who they just put everything on Instagram uh, for some reason. And um, yeah, so that was a fun little story. One thing that was revealed in this episode and became, to my mind, the whole genius of the episode real genius in the way that this particular episode was done about Anna Delvey is that she has a friend mm-hmm. or had a friend. Um, I actually don't remember her name. Do you remember her name? It was like Rachel. Rachel something. Rachel I mean, in Williams. a sense, it's not important because she's an archetype. Rachel Williams. Yes, yeah. that was her name. She was a Vanity Fair writer. And she is giving most of the interview for the show, right? You know, the way these shows work is you got to have mm-hmm. someone who's, pushing it forward who you're interviewing Mm -hmm. and in other shows it's like other kinds of like staff or other victims but in a sense she was the only kind of personal victim of the crime because the rest of it she was like basically defrauding hotels slash banks just like whatever who cares like who are you even going to interview you know the head of bank of america yeah uh so she's driving and so of course you're like okay 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 and she was one of the kind of seemingly only individuals who was really like defrauded in yeah. the whole process because at one point, Anna took her on a trip to Marrakesh. Yeah. And kind of did the thing where she got there and she was like, oh, my cards aren't working because uh, it's international and I forgot to tell my bank. Yeah. But no worries. Why don't you put it on your credit card and I'll, I'll hit you back. And so the girl put $60,000 on her credit card, on a corporate card, right. uh, which I guess would have been a Vanity Fair card. Which, A, um, is fucking remarkable. I cannot believe that you even have that. I do not have that credit line. I don't have a corporate um, card. <laughs> it doesn't even happen anymore. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I don't have a corporate card. Obviously, and I, yeah. I, I, I actually had had one at a previous job, but the limit was not 60000 No, And Jesus. my limit on my own credit card is not 60000 So yeah. it's sort of remarkable that you could get to that level. Um, but yeah, so what happens then is 
<laughs> at some point you get to the trial. Yes. In the show. Of Anna Delvey for Anna fraud. Anna Delvey for fraud and all these different Theft. counts. Yep. And they charge her with all sorts of things. Um, everyone that they're charging her against uh, is an institution that she's defrauded. Right. A bank, a hotel. Yeah. And then they tack on this charge, which is in the grand scheme of things, a kind of pissant charge. Yeah. Like it's not a whole lot. I mean, you know, based on what she was doing, it's not a whole lot of money. I mean, it is to an individual, but you know. But she, you know, it turns out that she was never actually made to pay it. Well, that that's what we yeah. learn later. But yeah. uh, but then we get at that point. But this is this is the prosecution's attempt to put a face to the harm. Yes, they want to put her on there because here's an actual person. Right. And so at that point, the whole documentary shifts to focus on this lady. And then yeah. you realize, oh, in a sense, the whole show is really about how this victim is herself a hustler. A hustler. <laughs> yeah. And so we get a few clips here. I'll, I'll play the first one. Um, uh, the defense attorney is amazing. Yeah, I think this starts with the defense attorney. Yeah, that's Spodek. Spodek. And he's talking about, hey, this Rachel Williams uh, person that they put on the yeah. stand. You know, this was this was really a good situation for us. Yeah. Um, I think she made a fatal mistake in court in how she presented herself. She's talking, he's talking about Rachel, Rachel Williams, yeah. right? So she's talking about, they put her on the stand, mm -hmm. she's doing her testimony. The most important thing at the trial, no matter what, is connecting with that jury. Do not bullshit the jury. She should have got on the stand and been like, look, I don't want to paint a picture that I'm an angel. I made over half a million dollars from this. So he's pointing out, and I should have pointed this out before I played the clip. I forgot exactly where it started. But after all this happened and during the trial, this lady goes out and has an incredible press tour, this yes. victim. She sells a book. She sells film options. Right. She's she's made, like you said, half a million dollars selling her story of being victimized by this Anna Delvey because this was like an electric this was a story huge at the time. Thing. Right. And she was on every show. They showed her on Doctor Oz and CNN, and like she was just everywhere. She had these glam photos of her right. in like magazines and like. Right. And because Anna Delvey was was on trial, she was not accessible to the press. The press wanted somebody with inside knowledge of this juicy hot. Right. story and someone who could sell the story because because for, anna couldn't right? yeah so for like, like weird goofy ass legal reasons you can't just like write the story unless you get rights from well it. it's it's like you know there were there was a, there was, so there was the new york magazine story which was not by rachel williams so they had rights to that narrative but then there is this other narrative which she has which is about her personal experience right. getting swindled right and because she is as we say like one of the only people mm -hmm. to get swindled and talk about it um, you know, she has, she has an important story that people are willing to buy. So she did all this and yeah. then, and then after doing all this, after making half a million dollars on, I was the innocent victim. I was innocent victim yeah. of this crime, mm -hmm. which as Liz has already pointed out, she didn't even have to pay the credit card bill right. because American Express was just waived it and was like, yeah. well, you were a victim of fraud. That's kind of what we do with credit cards is we don't, we kind of protect people from fraud. So yeah. she didn't even pay the shit. And then she made a half a million dollars. And then she goes to testify and like participates in the trial. Yeah. Which of course raises questions about it's is another this marketing not also part of your game? So yeah. he, he, he really, he eats this up. It worked out well for me. Doesn't mean Anna didn't fuck me over, but ultimately it worked out well for me. And the jury would have connected with it. But instead, she did it the opposite way. She ultimately testified about what a traumatic experience this was and she owed this debt. You have people whose parents died, had been evicted, maybe people are suffering from cancer, have such horrific problems in life. How could you sit there and testify about how owing a debt, uh, a $70,000 debt on a corporate credit card is the worst thing that ever happened to you? How would anyone relate to that? Once Rachel testified, it was like we won the Grammys. She had an opportunity, <laughs> now she wrote a story, then she writes a book, now she writes another book, and what happens? Now she's an author. In New York, people make it out of nothing. They hustle, Rachel hustled. I didn't do anything for money. <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> he just lights her ass up on the stands. They show pictures of her. Yeah. And she's crying. And he, you know, they don't give you the transcripts, but you can tell he's like, did you sell a book? Yeah. How, How much, much money did you, did you make from that? Yeah. Did you go on uh, CNN? Did you go on? Did you take this uh, picture of you smiling for a magazine about your victimhood? <laughs> Are we not currently in uh, an advertising 
uh, opportunity for you? Is that not what's taking place? Are you not like you have become a character? Yeah. In your own narrative that you're selling, so but he, like, let's talk about reality. He, you're fine. He hits her up, and then the, the documentary switches to her interview. Yeah, and she just said, like, like you just heard, I didn't do anything for money, and then she continues. It's like just full stop. That's not, you know, but it it did help me to repay debts. She didn't have to pay the debts. Mm-hmm. And in the end, American Express did end up protecting me from the Lamamunu charges, which See. was an immense relief. It was. I mean, of course, that was a huge relief. So what debt? There was a wave of media interest in the story. Mm-hmm. I was put in touch with agents at CAA who helped me to navigate this firm. completely uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. I was so put in there touch was with. Been a, um, Here she goes. A, I don't. Is it called a book? De- I guess a book deal and a, is a book, film option. A book. Uh, a, is it called a um is it a book is it well, like when you have a like a what if you write and it's but it's not but it's an article long, it's long and, and they kind of put it like in the book. and like book is it is pronounced it book is it a book deal? she is a writer ma'am she is a vanity fair writer she knows what a you book know what a deal fucking is. book deal is and it's and film options i, I guess there was she's, also a film she's option. being represented by cn which is this major creative firm. artist agency which like represents i mean just really heavy hitters it's like um, look you cashed out all right like <laughs> you got a book deal you sold your film rights in the documentary she's still playing it up but all this is still, over and she's still yeah. like like then you're like oh that's why she's in the documentary and they just turn the whole thing on her and it just here i'm just gonna keep on finish this one <laughs> for the trial I only attended on the day of my testimony only th- yeah. went on the it day of so much to get up during that trial and testify so especially like to recount something that was so painful and personal mm-hmm. I just kind of melted it was so yeah, raw mm-hmm. so raw so raw unfortunately raw. Anna's <laughs> lawyer kind of played up the fact that I had been emotional and said I deserved an Oscar for my testimony <laughs> and and I think used that hum- humanness, the humanity, the emotion of it against me as though I were being dramatic on purpose. She's, she was so hurt by it yeah. that she could only go to trial day of. That's the only, yeah. that's the only uh, amount of time she could spend you know. is the day of to hit my testimony. Oh, and also, by the way, I've, I just spent my whole life is just about telling this story. I just do it every day just for fun and then it ends like this so th- then there are a few minutes pass and then we finally we get the good news uh which is that um she uh that charge is acquitted yeah <laughs> even it, though it clearly happened yeah it clearly was a fraud and illegal the jury was just like fuck this lady who cares yeah jury <laughs> nullification on crimes against rich hustlers and here we go and they just didn't empathize at all with rachel who frankly uh wasn't a very empathetic character. To have the jury come back and decide in against me, like in her favor, um, as one of the two charges that she was found not guilty towards was just salt into a wound. Yeah. And then walking down the street and seeing people wearing fake German heiress t-shirts just <laughs> felt like a punch to the gut. Yeah, I bet. It's if funny. you haven't seen it, watch it. It's incredible. When she describes the nature of what happened to her, it's remarkable that she's like, I had these debts. It was a debt. It was a debt. It's like, you never hear the word betrayal. You never hear the word friendship. Well, it's and, not like... And what he points out, and, and part that I didn't clip, is she found Anna Delvey on Instagram right. and became her friend. And for a while, Anna Delvey... This is not a writer who was making a lot of money. She said at the, that at some point she had lost her job. And so she was like hanging out with a rich socialite who was paying for her to do cool shit, like including go to a fucking trip in Marrakesh. I mean, that ultimately that she got scammed on that one. But like, why are you going at all? Like you got with this lady so that she so that she would give you shit. Yeah, that's the whole game here. Um, yeah. No, I mean, you know, you saw someone on Instagram who was who was being noticed. You thought you could get in on some cool high society shit by being friends with who you took to be an heiress. Mm-hmm. And you got taken for a ride and then you took her for a ride right back. You got taken for a ride, except you didn't have to pay it because it right. was on a corporate car and American Express didn't make you pay it. And then you didn't really take her for a ride because you didn't charge. But you then just fucking banked. 
just banked on it yourself. Look, you guys are hustlers hustling each other day in, day out. You're like Wall Street people. Yeah, it's right? very sick you're on just, some deeper You're just level. people who are liars lying to each other and making money off of literally nothing, just a pile of fucking lies. And then there's one further lie, and that is that my heart was broken by this. <laughs> You're still pushing it's that one. It's just a lie. It's just a lie. And it's amazing. <laughs> the world around you is just full of lies. People pretending to be hurt is one of the big unspoken themes of our era. And this is one of the best examples of, That's true, of the yeah. just total prostitution of heartbreak. That's true. And she won't. This one is less controversial because it doesn't have other, uh, you know, it's not connected. It's, there's not to a bunch of baggage, of, but like yeah. this, that is such a moneymaker in our day and age. And it is such a lie. And I think on some level, everyone knows it. Yeah. But like you can't prove it. It's hard to call. Todd Spodek called it. And the yeah, jury. Todd Spodek doesn't give a fuck. Uh, the jury fucking heard him and was like, true that. You know what, lady? Congrats on your half a million. You should have just shut up and taken the money. <laughs> and there's that. It just provides a very weird epilogue to her book about how hurt she was that the jury was like, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a weird... It's a dissonant note. The, the final story is that uh, the public, when when presented to this, uh, not uh, you know through uh, these mediated forms of a book or a movie, was like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, the public was like, I just don't really see a victim here. Sorry. <laughs> Incredible. That was, you know, some of those the episodes in the series are hit or miss. That one was amazing just because of the turn of just like, oh, it's about another grifter. <laughs> and yeah. she doesn't realize that she's, you know, been recruited in, in a movie about a grifter. That's really about how she's a grifter. Um, you know, grifters, was, grifting grifters. It was really good. Um, That's all it is. Anyway, so. watch, and we'll be back soon with more. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>